Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Contracts are a hot topic in education, technology innovation, and practice in the legal industry. In fact, we've had several guests on the show focused on those aspects of contract management. Today's guest, though, focuses on contract formation. She asks a simple but important question. Can we learn to do a better job of negotiating and drafting better contracts? Laura Frederick is the founder and CEO of How to Contract. Drawn from her 26 years practicing contract law, How to Contract teaches real-world skills in negotiating and drafting contracts. She's also the managing attorney at Laura Frederick Law PLLC, a boutique law firm based in Austin, Texas, that helps companies that need practical and affordable advice on commercial contracts. The formation of How to Contract, or howtocontract.com, for those of you that want the URL, is a fascinating story. Two years ago, Laura began sharing daily contracting tips as part of a 30-day challenge of posting on LinkedIn. To give you a sense of the reaction, Laura went from 1,000 followers on LinkedIn to over 30,000 followers today. This in turn led to her book, Practical Tips on How to Contract. Also as a result of this reaction, in 2021, Laura launched How to Contract, a practical contract training platform. Through this platform, Laura has helped hundreds of lawyers and professionals master contract drafting and negotiation skills. We talked about this use of social media and her move to being an entrepreneur. We also discussed what ignited Laura's love of contracts, how and why she addresses the human side of contracting at a time when technology dominates, and the influence of Seifarth Lean on her evolution. The last point being, of course, near and dear to my heart. It was an enjoyable conversation. I hope you take away some great insights. Thank you for listening. I'm joined today by Laura Frederick of howtocontract.com and her own firm, the Laura Frederick Law Firm. Uh, Laura, thanks for making the time to join today. Oh, I'm privileged to be on with you. Let's start by setting some baseline information for our listeners for how to contract. What is it? What does it do? What's the mission of the organization, which you founded two years ago about? Yeah, March 2021 was when we really opened for business. So I'm a veteran lawyer. I've been a practicing commercial contracts lawyer for about 26 years or so with about 10 years in law firms, 14 years in house. And all that time, I really was looking for practical contract training. You know, I wanted to learn how to do my job better. Never really found it. So, or at least the kind that I wanted. So I opened my own firm in 2019 and I just decided, you know, this is the time to do it. So I started doing some training and that's what led me to create How to Contract. And How to Contract is a practical training platform where we really focus on particularly in-house counsel, helping them learn how contracts work in the real world, in their world, where it's a little bit different from what people learn in law school or even how contracts tend to work within law firms. So the focus is on that. We have a subscription, training subscription. We have events, including a big conference coming up in February. We're going to uh, talk about your presence on social media here in a little bit. But one of the uh, posts you put up on LinkedIn talked about how to contract as being the third leg and a three-legged stool in terms of talking about sort of the substance of contracting as opposed to the drafting or the overall legal concepts. Talk a little bit about how the overall picture, how that picture fits together. Sure. So there are different things to know about contracts, as we all know. And we learn in law school about fundamental contract law. 
So that's one concept of this is what indemnification is, and this is how limits of liability and damages work, and those kinds, you know, contract formation, all that stuff. So that's more of the how does contract law work? Then there's another category, which is how do you draft contracts? What's the best way to write the sentences following grammar rules for clarity, following legal construction things, things like that. And I think there's a third leg of that stool, which is what do we do in the real world? Because at the end of the day, the reason why we can't just all turn over our jobs to computers and AI is because there's a human element to it. And that human element involves understanding the psychology of how businesses come together and make decisions. It's understanding, I can make this change, but that's really going to piss off the other side. So I'm going to hold on to that for a little bit later and you know, kind of adjust it here. And then there's also, how does my company or client manage risk? Because there is no perfect one perfect provision. It's all about how your client manages risk and using contracts as a risk management tool. So I think that third stool, that third leg to the stool is really what I see missing and has been missing in terms of contract training. And I think that takes people who have been in the trenches negotiating contracts, helping clients and companies make those risk decisions. And so one of my big missions with How to Contract is to train people on how to make those risk decisions, how to use contracts as a business tool to achieve goals, how to use contracts as a way to mitigate risk and move your company forward. It must be an interesting training challenge to do that because there's different kinds of contracts. There's everything from, you know, clicking on the button for the Apple contract where you're signing over all of your life's belongings. If I suppose, I don't know, I've never actually read it. (laughs) Neither have I. (laughs) (laughs) To, you know, big merger and merger agreements, to everything in between, to technology contracts, to vendor contracts. I mean, when you when you begin to peel back the onion, there's a lot of complexity there. How do you sort of deal with that? Yet you found a way to make it simple and straightforward and understandable. How did you deal with that challenge? Yeah, no, and it is, it's a big challenge. And one of the things that I have going for me is I spent my whole career working commercial contracts. So it was always buying, selling, or licensing, particularly as a tech transactions lawyer. That's my core training. And so how to contract and my contract training really focuses on that sector. I don't do M&A trading. I don't do labor related contracts. Those are so particular and so complex, but The reality is what most in-house counsel do, especially in-house counsel who didn't come through law firm training do, is commercial contracts. It's the most common kind of contracts that companies face. And so, yes, we have the labor lawyer doing the labor contracts and the corporate lawyer doing the finance and M&A contracts. But then you have a lot of people doing product agreements and terms and conditions and you know, purchase orders and all the commercial ins and outs of the companies. So I, that's one way I deal with the complexities is I keep it to my bucket, which is commercial contracts. The other way I deal with it, which is how I've always kind of approached contracts, which is treating a contract like a car. And so if you have a car and you need to work on it, you don't just stand there and say, oh, look at that car. I wonder what needs to get fixed. You go down to the part level, then you go down to the subcomponent level, then you go down to all the other pieces and you start thinking about the car and fixing that car, working on that car at the piece level. So my approach is to break everything down. So for like a confidentiality provision, it's got 
eight big parts or, you know, eight different segments of concept covered. In each segment, there might be four or five issues that are covered. Let's say exceptions to the definition of confidential information. There's four standard exceptions. Within each of those four standard exceptions, there's three or four different nuances. So once you kind of dive down into the level, it's understandable. It's simple at that level. It's complex as a big document. But if you focus training just on the individual pieces, they're all things we can understand. They're things I try and train essentially my mother, my 83-year-old mother who's a nurse. I want to explain it in a way that she can understand it. She may not be interested in it, but at least she could kind of (laughs) understand it. (laughs) Exactly. You know, we're all smart. We all know a lot of things, but we often talk at a level that makes it hard for people to kind of consume legal information and retain legal information because it's so complex and it's so nuanced. But I think by breaking it into little pieces and learning the pieces one at a time, then you can add all the pieces together and soon you have a mastery of a bigger subject. One of the challenges I, I find in talking to people that do this for a living that I'm, I'd be interested to see how you deal with is making that risk reward assessment into a particular provision. Well, you know, we, we can negotiate hard on this and we'll piss off the other side. What do we really gain by doing that from a benefit to the company? And everybody makes that risk assessment different. What are the, what are the skills you're trying to teach people in handling that kind of analysis? Yeah. So what one of the ways I teach is just how I approach these things. So a lot of my training is really about, you know, if I'm in this situation, for example, I had a situation somebody asked me about, said the other side's stalling. You know, we need a million dollar limit of liability. They want $500,000 limit of liability. We're stuck. Neither side will move. What do we do? And I was like, okay, well, here's four steps. You know, this is how I would handle it. First, I would go to my business team and find out why we're stuck on that number on our side. And can we be flexible on it? Are there other ways to mitigate that loss or that liability risk? Two is, you know, why is the other side holding on to theirs and trying to understand that? So a lot of what I do is either explain how I do things and how I approach things just so people have a reference. They might not agree with how I approach it. They might do it a different way. But now they've got a frame of reference, especially for people who maybe haven't been trained through the law firm model and have kind of had to pick things up as they go, which I find is a lot of lawyers these days that maybe got trained on regulatory or litigation and then suddenly are finding themselves negotiating contracts. So I provide that information. But then I also go, I spend a lot of time talking about the softer side of contracts, you know, the feeling overwhelmed or how do you work with your stakeholders when they're being unreasonable or how do you talk to your client about their priorities and how do you understand their priorities and how do you, you know, work in their priorities, meeting the legal needs, understanding your role, all those different things together. It's such a multidimensional conversation about how you manage risk. But I will add the other thing I'll add, which has helped me so much over my career, which is the risk management as an academic subject. I discovered this in around 2007 or eight or nine. I was on a risk management committee at my company and I started learning about risk management. And it's a whole academic subject that you can dive into and read papers. And 
there's frameworks for how to approach things. And so I was able to bring a lot of that risk management approach to my personal contracting practice. And I encourage other people to do that too. So I include risk management concepts in my training because that's ultimately what a contract is. It's a risk management tool for business. I'm going to ask you about your conferences here in a minute, but as a general proposition, how do you deliver content? Is it virtual? Is it open enrollment? Are they specialized courses for groups? How do you scale the delivery of the knowledge? Yeah, to date, I've been focused on memberships. Training memberships is what I call them. When I started, I was going to do courses, but then I started thinking about it and I'm like, let's say I teach you how to work on confidentiality concepts in your contracts and on NDAs take a course, it's two sessions, three sessions, then we're done. You know, the other way I could do it is to give you a year's access to a training library with tons of guides and checklists and negotiation scripts and videos of me teaching and everything like that. So you can watch it once, but then let's say something comes up a couple months later, you're like, oh yeah, there's a negotiation script on this issue. Let me check that. So that was a lot of what I do is kind of what I would want as a user and what I wanted all my career to find and couldn't find, which was some library with everything I needed to know to be able to negotiate my contracts. So I have the training membership. I'm planning to do courses in 2023, but I wanted to focus in the first phase of my business on this training membership. And then we also have free events as well as paid events. We have workshops. We've got the conference coming up. So we really do a mixture of different things. You did your first conference January of this year, if I've got that right. Yep. And you've got your second one coming up in February of next year. Uh, And you had, uh, I think I saw 400 people or so at your very first conference. That's a great way to start. Yeah, it was tremendous. And it really validated this idea that people want this kind of training. Because there's a lot of free webinars and free things you can get on contracts and a lot of people talking about it. And so to have, you know, so many people willing to purchase a ticket and willing to join us for that day, you know, really validated the fact that this is a need in our industry to get this practical kind of contract training. Yeah. One of the things that is talked about in the world of legal technology is contract lifecycle management, smart contracts, contract automation. How does your training dovetail with the technology tools that are developing out there to involve the management of contracts or the creation of contracts, or is it something completely separate? I'd see it as a layer on top of it. You know, there's a human element to contracts. Someone is making a decision at some point about what to agree to with a counterparty. So let's say the world moves to standard forms, for example, that's one of the other trends. That's great, but if you don't understand what that form says, you're not able to represent your company and you're not able to kind of make that effective risk decision about it. The same with contract processes. When you're deciding which people are going to be deciding, you know, what aspects of your contract, understanding the different parts of the contract and when you should agree to this and when you shouldn't agree to this. And really, I mean, because at the core, what I'm trying to help people do is understand how to do the job of a commercial contracts lawyer or a contract professional, because we're all working with contracts in the real world. And so helping them learn that layer of understanding the contract they're managing, understanding auto renewal, understanding, you know, it's not just the system automates auto renewal. What do you do? What if you have a terrible auto renewal provision? 
how do you handle that? And so in my training, I get into a lot of those kind of things where I'm like, okay, we'll make sure you have a system where you're checking your calendar and perhaps you can have a ordering system that lets you ratchet down the numbers over time, or you could have other market qualifiers. So I really, my training is a layer on top of the CLM. I'm not trying to replace them or, or do what they do. I'm just trying to teach people, especially the lawyers and contract professionals who are the ones making decisions on how to make those decisions and what to consider. In addition to running outofcontract.com, uh, you also have your own law firm. Yes, yes. How do those dovetail with one another? Your law firm specializes in contract work, I take it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've my love, my first love is uh, vendor contracts. That's always been my favorite. So my law firm focuses mostly on that, helping companies with their vendor contracts. And so I opened it in 2019. It was everything. It was full time up until early 2021. And then I started doing more and more how to contract. And then as how to contract started making money, I started doing a little bit less on the law firm. But then at one point I, I had, you know, found other lawyers to take care of my clients and focused on how to contract, but I found I missed it. And so I had a new client come in and I was like, oh yeah, this will be fun. So now I do the, I kind of bounce them back and forth just depending on the work I do and what I'm doing. Most of the work I do that I enjoy the most, I have a specialty in renewable energy equipment contracts, which is a really a niche thing, but it I know. Is. <laughs> I know how to do it and enjoy it a lot. So my clients that I work with now do that. And I just, they're more project-based instead of long-term. So it's easy to kind of take a job, do it for a while, and then focus back on how to contract. But hopefully I'll be able to keep bouncing back and forth because that's the beauty of being an entrepreneur. You can kind of design your life and your work how you want it to be. And I really like that balance. Yeah, I'm going to get into sort of the origin story here in a minute because your your career history is fascinating. But I know one of the ways you've built both your law firm and how to contract is through the use of social media, particularly LinkedIn. And you started by posting a 30-day challenge. That's right. And it sort of took off from there. How, how did you manage that? Yeah, well, I'd never done much on LinkedIn or any social media other than, you know, post my kids' pictures on Facebook for my distant parents and friends to be able to see. So I had the idea, it was 2020, we're in the middle of the pandemic. My law firm had been doing really well. It'd been open for about 18 months at that point. And I wanted to get more clients. All my clients, I did an analysis and it was like 97% were either former coworkers or friends of former coworkers. So it was basically all word of mouth, which is great, but- Very traditional way of building business. Exactly. But I was like, well, you know what? I want to, I want to do more. Cause at this point I had grand dreams for my law firm. And so I saw that challenge and I was like, you know what? I want to get clients for my law firm who would appreciate my expertise with contracts because that's our focus. And so I saw this challenge and I was like, well, I, I don't think I can post 30 days, but I, I think I could do 10 days. And so I started with that idea, but I'd try for 30. And if I stop, no problem. So I just started writing essentially the, and all of us have that, the things that we want to tell the counterparty, but you can't tell them to their face because it's kind of rude. Uh, <laughs> you know, like, hey, stupid. Uh, you know, we all have that feeling, but we contain it. But I could write those things in a post. So that's kind of where my initial contract tips came from. Things I wanted to tell my counterparties that I negotiate contracts with, basic fundamental truths like, 
you're still on the hook even after you assign a contract if there's no novation or how different conventions work with international sales of goods and things like that. So anyway, I started posting those and people just really engaged and that feedback of people talking about the concepts and I got to talk with them about the concepts and it was, you know, just a beautiful thing. And soon there's this whole community out there that kind of I discovered and I think it was kind of forming around that time of people who were stuck at home during the pandemic wanting social connection with others and people who really loved contracts. And so this contract community on LinkedIn grew and every day I looked forward to my interactions with everybody. And soon people were telling me, oh, I look forward to your tips every morning. I get my coffee and I find your tip. And once that started, how do I stop? You know, I disappoint too many people and I'm, I can't deal with that. So I just kept going. Now you, you've grown to something like 30,000 followers on LinkedIn. I mean, that's, that's sort of an amazing, shows the power of the social network, but it also shows a, a chord you've struck. Who would have thought there'd be 30,000 people looking for tips on contracting every day? Exactly, exactly. And then the other fun part of it is I was always playing with the LinkedIn game. Like, how do you get more views? And, you know, if I post the same subject three days in a row, I discovered that the views and interest drops off dramatically. So I learned how to post and when to post and things. So in the beginning, I didn't have any images. And then I started at somebody said, Oh, you really should use images. So I started doing like generic stock photos, like a warehouse or a hat on a pill or something. It was just so boring. And then over time, then I discovered, oh, well, I could do stick figures and I'll just do stick figures. And then soon I started adding dialogue to stick figures. And then eventually I've created, because I'm doing these myself and I'm getting better and better at Canva and learning how to make these scenes because I'm posting every day and they're creating cartoons every day. So soon, and now they're like these elaborate one scene comics. Somebody called it the Michael Bay of legal cartoons because <laughs> I'll have explosions, I'll have zombies, I'll have cows in negotiation. You know, I get to let my imagination go wild. And it's become actually the most fun thing I do. I love making the comics. Sounds like a huge amount of fun. It is. It is so much. So talk to us a little bit about your career path. You started in private practice. But then you moved in-house. What was that decision like? I started, I was at a couple firms. Then I joined Marston and Forrester as a fifth year. And it was in the dot-com boom. So it was sort of, even though typically you wouldn't go to a big law firm that late, that's when I started at my first big law. And that's part of the reason I appreciate training so much because all of a sudden when I got there as a fifth year, I was flooded with all this amazing training and learning opportunities. And it was like the thirsty man in the desert all of a sudden being given all this water. So I just ate it all up. So I get to MoFo and then I'm there for about five years. But during those five years, I actually had three children. So when I had a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and I was pregnant with my uh, next one, I decided, you know what, I don't think I can do the big law, massive hours kind of thing. And I could have done part-time, but it was time to look for a nine-to-five job. And I found it. So I didn't go to any of the Bay Area. I was in San Francisco at the time. I didn't go to any Bay Area companies because I knew it would be very similar to the big law experience. And so I found a job that was no weekends, no nights, and you go, you show up every day, 8.30, and you walk out the door at 5. And it was a traditional energy company in Allentown, Pennsylvania. 
And it was perfect. I lived there five years. I learned so much while I was there. I learned all about energy. But then I also learned like environmental trading and commodity trading and derivatives because we had a whole trading operation. And then I bought uranium for our nuclear plants and I managed. Yeah, it was, you know, I even did a naming contract. We had naming rights for a soccer stadium. It was such a fun diversity of contract experiences and really set me up to know, you know, I've touched everything. Partly from that experience, partly from the law firm, from other places as well. But I think all those different experiences really broadened my understanding. And because it's a lot broader than most lawyers, I think I, I've done so many different things. I know a lot about everything just because of the diversity of the experience. And you wound up at Tesla through their acquisition of Solar City. Yes. What was it like working for they're both startups, I guess, technically, although they're both big <laughs> in a way. In a way, they were both big. Exactly. But, but they're on the cutting edge of sort of innovation. It was amazing. And when I joined Tesla, I started, I was really in the solar uh, equipment supply chain and handling that. But soon, right, not long after I joined Tesla, the person who had been in charge of the global environmental commodity legal work left. And my boss, you know, was looking around and I was like, well, I know how to do that because I'd been working in environmental commodity work for years at my old company and handling greenhouse gas credits and emission credits and things like that. So from shortly after I joined until I left, I was the lawyer handling all the zero emission vehicle credits and greenhouse gas credits and other things related to the vehicle side of the business. And it was a really exciting time to be doing that because this was 2017, end of 2016 to 2019. And there was a lot of growth and a lot of exciting opportunities. And the work was just tremendous. The people were amazing. I had an incredible time working there. And yet you chucked it all away and started your own law firm. <laughs> what, exactly. what, what caused you to make that leap into, into, let's be honest, the unknown? Oh, very unknown because I'd never, I'd never owned a law firm. I'd never owned my own business before at that point. And everything was so great. Like there was no way I could improve on this job from what I like to do and what the job offered. And I thought, but I'm still not happy. Like a hundred percent. I still feel like there's something missing. And I actually interviewed a couple of places and I was like, wow, it's just going to be the same thing and it's probably going to be worse. So. And then I did some soul searching and I really came up with the idea and I figured it out. It took me a long time was that I wanted freedom and I wanted freedom to work with the people I wanted to work with. I wanted freedom to do the tasks I wanted to do. Anytime you're in a company or an organization, you're kind of stuck working with certain people. But if you own your own business, you're not. You can fire a client. You can not pursue this business relationship. You can do a lot of, you have a lot of control. So I decided that was what I wanted. And it was true because I can tell you I'm a million times happier, even though I was so happy there and enjoying it so much. The joy of having my own firm and controlling my destiny and controlling what I do and how I do it and when I do it is just been amazing. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, I, I can't let you go without you reciting the story about your experience with process mapping and Seifarth Lean. Yes, yes. So Seifarth, I knew all about Seifarth when I was in-house. This was in that job, the 
big energy company. And I was in charge of kind of overhauling our operations, legal operations. And this was back in the early, early days before all the current before there was such a thing as legal ops, right? Exactly, exactly. And I went, I, it was, le- I had taken over the legal operations role or at least managing it. And then I was a lot, I was sent to the seminar and the, you, there was a speaker talking from Cypharth about the Cypharthlene processes. And I rem- I still remember, I think I still have a copy of the handout in my files, at the paper files that I keep, but it, she had a process map of how to do this kind of, and I don't remember what agreement it was, but it was a relatively simple agreement and it outlined how you had set that up and what you do with your clients in terms of setting up those processes. And I had never seen, I'd seen process maps for business. I'd never seen anything like this. And even if I had seen process maps, it was just kind of discounted. Like we all, you know, if it's not my area, it's like, yeah, that's what technical people do. And for the first time I saw it applied to legal and it was I'm not understating it was life changing because I really, for the first time, I saw the light. I saw what you could do with some systematizing the processes and functions that all lawyers do. It wasn't just everything is unique and every, you know, treat each contract as a unique thing and recreate the wheel every time. I finally saw like, oh, there's a better way. So I'm always grateful to your firm for introducing that to me. Well, we're we're delighted to have played a role in your success. Moving back, last question in the how to contract. How do you deal with this dynamic where everything's a special snowflake? I presume you, you have people come in with that mindset or that approach. Yeah. How do you disabuse them of that, of that notion? And that's actually where risk management comes in is by focusing. And I believe this is the best way. If you have teams at your company that are really treating every contract as a snowflake, lawyers have to look at every single one and approve it because there might be something in there. And where we really have to step back is, you know, we are making risk management decisions every day and looking at every single contract is a risk management choice because you're not spending that time on things that are I would argue much more important and critical and where you can have a bigger impact. Reviewing a hotel agreement for $5,000 to rent some space for a party, the potential liability for that is minuscule compared to a $5,000 widget that's going to be integrated into your main product and given to your main customer. And so helping people see the risk management approach and the choice of what's the likely impact and that we're only controlling so much with our contracts, but to look at risk management as a bigger picture. Okay, our contract can do X, but we could also update our processes. We could add an extra approval. We could buy insurance. There's all these other things that companies do to mitigate risk other than contracts. So I think exposing people to that bigger picture of risk management really helps them see that contracts are just one small piece often an important piece, but not the only piece, and that we shouldn't treat them as the only piece. That's a fabulous way to uh, approach it. I hadn't thought about it that way. That's really intriguing. And I think it really helps people get there on the risk on the risk management idea and also just kind of how do you teach judgment? You don't teach judgment, you teach risk management. And by teaching risk management, people figure out the judgment. If people are interested in the uh, conference, where do they go to get more information, Laura? 
Yeah, the best place is howtocontract.com. You can also connect with me. I love connecting with everybody. Please comment on the post. We have great discussions about contract issues every day on LinkedIn. We love people engaging, adding your wisdom, asking questions. It's just a real fun way to engage on contracts and learn about contracts. I learn every day on LinkedIn from the comments people make. Laura, thank you for the fascinating conversation. We appreciate your time and I know all the uh, folks who are crazy about contracts out there are going to hang on every word. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.